0: Hello ladies, gentlemen, everybody, and welcome to this, the latest episode of Media Voices. This season we're doing deep dives into some of the biggest trends, tools, and tech that has affected and continues to affect publishers over the past 12 months and into the next year. Now that's as part of our annual Media Moments 2023 report, which is going to be released early December, and you can pre-register for that at voices.media/ forward slash MM23. I'm Chris Sutcliffe.
1: I'm Esther Thorpe.
0: And this week, we are joined by Gillian McMath, who is audience editor of Wales Online. Now, you were chosen by judges as the winner of the first ever Hero of the Year at the Publisher Newsletter Awards. So, I mean, who better to come on and actually discuss newsletters and newsletter strategy with us? Gillian, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. It's, It's one of those things where... We, t- we almost take newsletters for granted now just because they're part of our day-to-day lives, but the amount of work that goes in under the hood to make them effective and actually valuable for audiences is unbelievable. You know, Esther, if we think about the strategy that we try to employ and how much we think about the strategy for, the, for our newsletter, which is a relatively small operation, it just, it's terrifying to think how much actually goes into making that regular touchpoint work.
1: Yeah, I feel, I feel like we're just in bumble-along mode at the moment, but that, that's another topic <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, so Gillian, why don't you take us through sort of what your journey was, originally to joining Wells Online, um, and what were some of those big opportunities around newsletters and the newsletter portfolio that you could see when you yeah, took charge of that? Yeah,
2: so I moved over to the UK about seven years ago, joined Reach about six years ago, um, And first in a much smaller publication in the Southwest, and then I moved to Wells Online about four and a half years ago, probably. And we'd already been using newsletters when I started looking after them, but it wasn't really an area that any single person was owning at the time in our newsroom. Mm -hmm. We were just kind of learning them as we went and sending them when we had big stories. Um, So when I took over looking after them, there was a period of time where we were just focusing on the basics, right? So making sure the newsletters we launched were being sent regularly regularly at optimal times with the best stories, strong subject lines, that kind of thing. We had to kind of tackle those basics first where there was no way we could have expanded. Um, But once we had that covered, we could see that they were paying off, and it opened the door to kind of make it a much bigger part of our newsroom strategy. So we started building a subscriber list for our three biggest city audiences. So that would be like Cardiff, Swansea, Newport. And then after that, we expanded into some regional patches and some specialty content like our food and drink newsletter, nostalgia, health, and then at that point, when I would first gotten there, we weren't really uh, doing any strategic promotion yet. So for a while, we just kind of went crazy trying to work out how we could put our newsletters in front of as many people as possible. So writing promotion into stories, posting it on social, cross-promoting in different newsletters, um, and really just pushing them as hard as we could until we found what worked. And uh, we really saw it start paying off in the stats. And I think now we're just shy of two dozen newsletters in the newsroom.
1: So it's, uh, it's really grown in the past couple of years. Um, you mentioned there about the stats. Um, I suppose what when you're looking to set up a strategy like that, metrics for a lot of publishers um, are kind of quite a hot topic. They're a bit of a contentious topic given you know Apple will mess about with open rates and all sorts of things. <laughs> um, what metrics are key for you to show that a newsletter is doing well or perhaps needs a bit of extra um, love? Which metrics you use to determine your success really depends
2: on what your goals are. So in our case with news, there are a lot of things I think you need to look at to kind of form the whole picture in your performance. So like you mentioned with open rights, there are valid reasons to kind of question the reliability of them. But they're still worth looking at as an indicator of consistent performance, I think. So mm. you don't want to see them fluctuating up and down. Do you, that's, that's a sign something's wrong. But I probably wouldn't use a high open rate in itself uh, to determine that a newsletter is successful. So in our case, page views are quite important. Ultimately, we want as many eyes as possible on the stories that we're writing and our content. So we do have page view targets. Um, in addition to that, I'm always looking at daily, monthly new subscribers, our net gains. So how our new subs compared to our unsubscribers and then our active subscribers so the people who have actually not only received our newsletter, but opened them in the last 28 days. All of that sort of feeds into a bigger picture for us and tells us what people are interested in and what's working and what isn't.
0: Esther, I don't know about you, but the, it's the, it's not even a voluntary metric, but it's open rate for me. So whenever we send out our email, I'll come back like a day or a day and a half later and go, that's lower than yesterday. That's lower than (laughs) Esther's newsletter from yesterday. What what, what is it that's gone wrong with me? (laughs) Why is it my fault that this has gone down? But it's it's fascinating. I think that that conversation has uh, moved on because for a while it was purely subscriber numbers. But now to your point, you know, there are so many more sophisticated ways of actually measuring the success of a newsletter.
2: And so many different ways to interpret all of that as well.
0: I mean, yeah, that, that makes so much sense. We were just chatting about this internally at the, kind of like my full-time job the other day, about newsletter open rates and how you can interrogate them in so many different ways depending on what you're looking for. You know, and it's different per you know, interest-led newsletters versus kind of the regular updates. So yeah, I, I, I imagine it's really, really fun to actually sit down and sort of try and work out which of those heuristics and which of those regular ones that you need to be focusing on.
2: Fun um, and infuriating at times, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm sure everyone here has sat down and stared at a subject line and went, could I have done that better? Could I have written that differently? Would it have made a big difference on this open rate? That sort of thing.
0: Unless it's, um, as we tend to do, you're doing it about 10 10 o'clock at night and then it's just like, (laughs) ah, fine, we'll just get it out and it'll be all right.
1: That's where I'm kind of intrigued about the possibilities of AI to sort of, can, you know, can, can they generate a subject line that, mm. well, I, I suppose there's loads of email platforms that have done like A-B testing with subject lines for ages, aren't they? That's just not something we've uh, we've dived into quite <laughs> yet. Um, one of the things that uh, I know Wales Online did was um, y- you were involved in launching a, a COVID newsletter. letter. Um, firstly, is that still ongoing or was that a, just a sort of limited time pop-up? COVID
2: first emerged. I was actually working as a UK and world news reporter for Wales Online. So it was very early days of the pandemic, which meant, we were covering every aspect of COVID-19. So what is it? Where is it? How does the virus work? How is it spreading? And then when it arrived in the UK and Wales, it became apparent to us that this wasn't going away anytime soon and that we had a responsibility to keep people informed in Wales, particularly as the, the rules and decisions here were so different than they were in other parts of the UK. Um so, originally, we started a COVID 19 in Wales Facebook group, which just exploded. Mm. It grew so quickly. And that told us that people were really looking for one place where they could go to see all the latest COVID information about Wales in particular. So, after I moved over from that reporting role to looking after our newsletters, I realized that a COVID newsletter would be a really simple and effective way to deliver this content straight to the people who wanted it. The interesting thing I would say with this is that we were actually quite late to the game in launching it. I'm, happy to admit that. <laughs> um, <laughs> when when we thought about it, when I pitched it, everyone kind of said, the pandemic's already happening. Like, what's the point in doing this now?
0: Oh, uh, oh I know. In I know. Oh my God.
2: <laughs> great idea. But why now? Um, but we took a chance on it. And we had no idea at that point that COVID would be dominating the news for the next three years. So it worked out. <laughs> so yeah. that was lucky. Um, but it, it quickly became one of our most successful newsletters. And our subscriber list grew really quickly. We're seeing really high page view return from it. And we were sending it at least once a day, sometimes more than that. Um, but I appreciate that COVID was a really exceptional situation. So as a pop-up newsletter, this worked in a way that many others probably wouldn't. Um, but I think it taught us a lesson. It would have been a huge missed opportunity not to try it. Even if you think you might be late to the game, there are still opportunities sometimes. Um, but in terms of that newsletter now, obviously that that didn't last forever. COVID is still in the news, but it's not the way it was in the early days. So this was a kind of learning experience for us on how to um, retain readers when maybe um, something that you're writing about changes in some way. Mm. So what we did was... We wanted to keep those people. We knew that they cared about our content. So we've kind of, we turned that newsletter into a health newsletter now. So what we did was keep writing that COVID content and keep including it. But also COVID got people thinking about health in Wales, the NHS in Wales, how things are operating, that sort of thing. So now we're taking those stories that we write and we're including it there. And it's kept our list going. And we told people we were going to do this. So they had the opportunity to leave if they wanted to. But we found that most people have stuck around and the list just keeps growing so that was the first time we'd done that, and we found it really successful.
0: One of the things that I think is, is fascinating there, just before we move on, is this idea that, you know, you used it not just to kind of test an experiment, but also to prove why people like newsletters as a source of news in the first place, because it's finite. You said you were sending multiple a day sometimes so it's that kind of edition-based publishing which people really really like mm-hmm.
1: I think there's something quite interesting in that and um I don't want to say like COVID's obviously not a niche but the, the way that um I can remember in the early days of COVID you try and get information and it's like oh, okay that's Scotland's rules that's Wales's rules that's like London Zone two's rules like and you just got to say it was quite unintelligible what the actual rules were for your place so I suppose it's that
0: even if you're a government it- <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, it's the idea that you can that you can turn what was localized COVID coverage into localized health coverage because because we we in the we in England forget that Wales's NHS system and healthcare system is actually doesn't work the same way as ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that sort of that regional focus is really interesting.
2: I think it was probably like historically one of the first times where you really had to be. Clear about differentiating what was happening here versus what was happening everywhere else. You know, there were so many specific rules, and it was very confusing, even for us at times. You know, who were looking at it every single day, going to every single press conference. It was really an area where I think people were really appreciative to have that localized content.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, local newsletters are. Well, well I'm sure we'll get into that. But yeah, fascinating to hear that you could do that for such a kind of a newsletter event as COVID. Obviously, they were very interest focused newsletters which are growing in popularity i think people have recognized the the value of the medium and now they're sort of extending out what sort of coverage they do with it so when it comes to kind of the interest based newsletters like those around food and football how are you getting people involved in that when you are primarily a news organization how are you bringing people into the fold of interest led newsletters
2: yeah so i would say at wales online all of our newsletters are wales focused They vary in how much we zoom in and zoom out on different subjects, but we found that being whale-centric is pretty critical to us in building a loyal audience. And and that's the thing with newsletters, right? You're loyal audiences. So we thought there are plenty of places to go to read about food generally, but our niche is knowing our local communities and what's important to them. So even in the newsletters we have about food, for example, we're looking at local restaurant openings, closures, reviews, that sort of thing. So we're always keeping that very whale-centric Uh, reach overall does have um, some newsletters that cover things like baking and film but we've kept our personal portfolio
0: quite local well let me ask you this so jillian you obviously produce a lot of newsletters but what are some of the interest-led ones that you subscribe to either from wells online or outside of wells online
2: there's so much content coming into people's inbox every single day personal emails work emails newsletters i know me personally since newsletters are basically my life i am very choosy about what i allow into my personal inbox um i do follow a couple obviously but um one i really like is the daily skim you on the spot about other newsletters <laughs> I, uh, read um
0: you know you like. can just say that you you like the the media voices daily news that daily. you're allowed to say that if you want <laughs>
2: I think it's quite a victory to get people to sign up to a newsletter. It seems like, you know, one person isn't a big feat, but it, it's tough. People don't want stuff that isn't relevant to them in their inbox. And there's always that risk of sending too much, sending too little. If they get one once every two months, they're going to be like, what is this? When did I sign up for this? <laughs> if they get two a day, they're going to be like, no, this is way over my limit. You know, so you've got to find that really healthy balance. And that's tough.
1: So I, I actually had this recently with um, with where I live there's um, there's a there's a national news group that operate a, a regional brand here and I signed up to the newsletter and it was like it wasn't great. So I, I unsubscribed ages ago. And then there's a local news article, um, this is like Eve from Noticeable, that actually comes from one of the Facebook groups. That's really interesting. It's like developed into its own media business. It's now got its own awards and it, it's absolutely crazy. And they've been saying for ages, oh yeah, I've got this news because Facebook dro- reach is dropping. And I finally signed up for it and it's actually really nice. They've got like <laughs> loads of stuff from all the local businesses, um, you know, sort of local heroes. It, it, it's, re- it's really, really nice. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at that. Uh, but it, it, I think it's very notable that it, it's run by people who are really embedded and really know the community and are really passionate about the town which is really lovely um so that's i, th- I think that's the only non-media one i get actually i'm really <laughs> nerdy
0: <laughs> but julian you mentioned that it's, it's a victory to get one person to sign up to what extent are the readers almost a primary source of marketing for the newsletters you know to what extent do you call upon them to share the newsletter and you know is there best practice around getting those subscribers involved in sending it on and, and almost being a brand ambassador for it
2: we hope that's happening. Let's put it that way. It's very hard to measure that because yeah. you can't see that someone's gone. Hey, look at this. I think you'll be really interested, but we do write into some of our newsletters. Um, here's a link to share on with other people. If, if you'd like to sign up for it or if it was shared with you and you would like to sign up here's how you do it to get it in your inbox every single day so we're doing those kind of things um in the hope that it's being passed around between people who you know have similar
1: interests but it's a very difficult thing to measure i know demographics are also quite tough to measure um one of the things that i can remember it was i don't know if it was a reuters report last year that said that basically like under under 25s or something don't use email and like, what did this mean for the future of newsletters? Oh, we, Chris, we talked about this like quite a while yeah, ago. Yeah,
0: I know. I just every time I hear the stat, I'm just like, what?
1: That It this. was. It was quite a weird thing. But we were like, well, you must have to have an email just to have a bank account. So, like, I, I don't know. Do you do you do you find that there's a particular there are particular groups of people that engage with it, or is it fairly it, your email subscribers fairly sort of a fairly decent spread? That's also a difficult thing to know for sure,
2: but yeah, (laughs) yeah, we definitely see that there are different demographics for all the different, uh, services we provide. So we've recently moved into doing WhatsApp communities and WhatsApp messaging, Um, Mm. And we're thinking that that's going to attract probably a younger audience who's Mm. on their phone constantly used to getting regular messages, that sort of thing. We know that newsletters appeal to different people. We know that the Facebook groups we run appeal to different people. Mm. So I think uh, the best thing you can do is just cover your bases and try to be in all of those places, um, which obviously is a massive challenge. And you've got to have scale in order to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, that's really smart. And I've texted my little brother; he's twenty, just to see if he does get any email newsletters. So, if we get an answer back before the end of the recording, I will include
1: it. <laughs> How do okay. you not have an email address? <laughs> People are just like, oh yeah, we, we only use them to like sign up to to sort of you know your essential <laughs> services, and they don't really like read emails. I was a bit like, well, surely once you start in the workplace, you're going to need, like, you're going to get your work email, and you're going to have to like, I don't know, unless you join one of these trendy places that only uses Slack.
0: Far too paranoid now. Every time I get an email, I have to open it just in case it's you know. I'm just paranoid that it's going to be HMRC going like, by the way, you're going to prison unless you respond to this email in two minutes. Uh, I think they still
2: do that through the post.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thank God for that. (laughs) I'm interested in something you mentioned at the start. So you said that there was basically nobody who had responsibility for kind of a, a wider view of the portfolio. But when you're actually getting people involved in creating the newsletters, what does that look like internally? Do you have people who are regularly doing the newsletters? Is it the responsibility of a team? How do you get people involved and invested in actually creating them?
2: So it's always a challenge getting people invested in something new because these days journalism isn't just writing stories, it's it's reporting, it's using social media. So for Wales Online, our daily news newsletter was the primary focus for a while. I was working to grow that and promote it until we were able to see the page we returned from it. And that was really important, I think. And I feel like people had to see that success in order to want to get involved themselves. Mm. What we did at Wales Online was start feeding daily stats back to the newsroom about what was being clicked on newsletters, what our top performing stories were from them, how many page views they were, they were bringing in, and it was until that was kind of ingrained into our way of working. And in particular, so we added a quick review of um, stats from the previous day's newsletters into our morning conference, and that, that kind of helped it start to be seen as an integral part of our strategy and as a benefit to individuals as well as the brand. And that really made a difference, I think. And now we have reporters running their own newsletters for their own specific patches. So I think um, the buy-in is there now, but it does take a very long time.
0: I think that's such such an interesting virtuous circle there as well, because it's not just delivering value back to the parent brand, it's delivering value back to the journalists who are doing it. Both to your point that, you know, it's another string to your bow journalism, is much more diffuse now than it used to be. But also this idea that you can actually then go well look at the click through look at you know what that's done to your page view and like page view targets are so integral now to a lot of strategies there is a kind of that virtual circle of going look the more effort and time you put into the newsletter the better your journalism is going to be the more widespread it's going to be read
2: definitely and with these smaller patch newsletters so um Our reporters are running them themselves now. So a lot of times they're writing the stories for that whole area. So their newsletter will be all of their local stories. So that generates page views and then local people read it and get back in touch with them, you know, to comment on them and to provide them with more stories. So it is a full circle thing that's really benefited them. Um, But it does it does take a
1: while to make that happen. Um, But I think we're starting to get there now. And I guess as well, something that's quite important for for local news is that it's it's the right, like you're not going to subscribe to a Cardiff newsletter if you're not interested in or at least Based in Cardiff, whereas I suppose people that come in sort of via Google might might be sort of searching for something that's, that's not quite relevant. And I suppose it, it really helps build the the true local community rather than the or the true local traffic rather than just the sort of flyby traffic that is less interested in the community stuff itself. Um, there was something you mentioned uh, just back then that was that was quite interesting about um, writers or, or staff having their own newsletters. Do you see differences in the responses to newsletters written, I suppose, generically from the newsroom and the brand versus newsletters written visit by those key writers?
2: Um, I think there's a place for both of those things. So you don't need a face or a big name behind a newsletter to make it valuable. It's always content that's the most important thing in a newsletter. But in some cases, I think having a, a visible person behind it does help engagement. So we're more likely to get letters from readers, for example, when there's a person there. They know they're writing back to someone rather than just to a newsroom generally. And our editor will send out a newsletter to our daily list um, and he'll write directly to our readers. And when we started doing this, we were just blown away by the reaction to it. His inbox was inundated with responses, which is great. And we wouldn't get that with just a, a daily kind of more generic send that comes from the newsroom. Our Wales Matters newsletter is another great example of this. It's all about the issues facing whales. So it's it's basically a daily column from one of our specialist reporters, and they alternate who sends it and covers politics, health, current affairs, um, and it's a place where we've kind of experimented putting a face in front of people and saying, this is coming from me and this is an issue I care about. And we've decided to throw out page views on this newsletter and just ah. not make that the priority. And it's a, a place where we found we can really showcase really important journalism, which is really important to people in Wales. And it's some of the best of what we do. And we find because we're putting certain reporters up to write those specific things that we're getting a great reaction from it. So, so there is definitely a place for that.
0: I'm really interested in what you just said there about, you know, you're stripping out some of those traditional metrics there. So how are you, I suppose, attributing value to actually doing that? Obviously there's a lot of anecdotal stuff there, but what would you say is proving the value of that when you're talking about it internally, if you're not doing some of those traditional metrics?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a tougher sell to people. I think Or or to bosses, you know, to say, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not people generally, but to bosses to say, yeah, we're probably not going to get any pages from this, but we're going to put a lot of work into it every single day. Um, and they are because they're writing columns exclusively for this. Um, but I think because it's a Wales Matters newsletter, it's a, it's about our country. It's about the issues that are affecting everybody. It's about really serious stuff that's important. I think you can make a case that, you know, this is worth doing and it's some of our best work and it's showing people that we care about the things they care about and we're seeing a response from people you know people are getting in touch with us to tell us about things and to tell us their opinion um and to respond to our polls and to take our surveys and then for us to feed that information back to them um it's i, I think it's proving itself that it's not all about page views
0: this is the town hall stuff that you know i'll back in the day newspapers had where they had that direct relationship they would actually you know go out and talk to people directly and it's just sort of been transplanted to this new medium it's not even necessarily a new medium just kind of this new way of thinking about newsletters so i'm i'm fascinated by the idea that you can use it not just to disseminate information but actually to build a community around these letters as well
2: yeah in every single one we make sure it's really clear who wrote it so there's like maybe five people that write it on a regular basis so the bottom of each newsletter will say this newsletter is written by Lydia or this one's written by Ruth do you want to talk about what we've written about today get in touch and we provide an outlet for people to to reach out directly to us in comments or offer their opinion that sort of thing
1: there's this overarching trend that I think has come out of this that um a lot of publishers have got newsletters. A lot of brands have got newsletters. But the people working on them, it tends to be the editorial team who sort of yeah, they send a newsletter daily, weekly. Do you think there's a benefit to having somebody in a similar role like you, who sort of has a bit more of a holistic oversight of the entire portfolio and can kind of share what they've learned across across different brands, different newsletters, and, and approach it as a portfolio rather than just individual brand newsletters.
2: Yeah, I think it definitely helps to have someone overseeing kind of the whole operation to see the direction it's heading in. It's very easy to look at one newsletter and go, that open rate looks all right. Those page views looked all right. You know, but I think you need to see what the bigger picture is, how much you're really bringing in from it monthly. Um, You need to compare them against each other. So why are subscribers growing for this one, but not for this one? Um, Is it that people don't care about this? Or did we not give it the promotion it deserved? Uh, Are we not putting it in front of people in the right way, maybe? Um, so I, I do think it's really important to look at that whole picture. Just like I was saying with stats, you know, you can't you can't make a decision based on looking at one number or one newsletter. You have to look at the the whole portfolio. I think so. Yeah, it's it's really helped us. I know just to have someone who's able to come in and dig down into the numbers and, and look at what's working and what isn't and share those findings.
0: One thing you touched upon there, and I know you mentioned it earlier on, is the idea of promotion for newsletters, because obviously being the, the Wells online brand you're not coming from a standing start here you do have assets you do have equity that you can use to get people to sign up but how do you actually go about promoting newsletters across the portfolio and I suppose does it differ between new and existing newsletters
2: yeah so obviously you need quite a big push for a new newsletter you've, you've got to be putting it everywhere to get people signed up for it so we use social media to do that We'll put out calls on Facebook for people to sign up. We'll put links to relevant newsletters underneath stories that we post on Facebook. We'll tweet Mm -hmm. them alongside stories, sign up links alongside stories that relate to that subject. Um, And then we also build them into our content on our website. You know, we know that we have control over that and who sees that we know people are coming directly to us. So we'll put in a box that says, Hey, if you like reading this, you'll probably care about our Wales matters newsletters, which covers all of these things, sign up here and putting An easy way for people to sign up right in front of them really helps. Obviously, we've got a place you can go to on the site um, where you can sign up to any one of them in one single spot. But then people have to look for that, you know, and you don't want people having to go look for your newsletters. That's not that doesn't work for anyone. So um, we found that making it really easy for people, putting these opportunities right in front of them, suggesting things to them has really helped.
0: I'm nicking that idea. Esther, we should be doing uh, we should be doing sign up links in our uh, body copy for the podcast
1: yes we in the we got we, we do
0: okay well <laughs> i was unaware of
1: that oh okay <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, okay, well, all right, I think of something else.
1: And we even have a pop-up box on the website as well, Chris. Oh, you're
0: right. Oh, you're right. I forgot about the pop-up box.
1: As we sort of go into twenty, gosh, as we go into 2024, where is the year gone? Are there any sort of bigger newsletter trends or opportunities you think you or other publishers could be taking advantage of? Maybe things like personalization, AI, I mentioned the word paid newsletters. I think AI is really interesting to people right
2: now. Everybody's talking about it, and I do think that that's definitely going to be something people are going to try to incorporate into newsletters. And it's interesting how that might be possible. You can imagine, like, if they start if AI starts writing your newsletters for you, that kind of thing. Who who knows? I don't know. I can't dream that up. But <laughs> um, you can see that being brought into newsrooms already. For example, by tracking readers' clicks and then re- recommending next best stories to them, that sort of thing. That's already happening. So I'd love to see. Way to bring that intelligence in, but I don't think we're there at the moment. (laughs) So, Mm. fingers crossed for 2024. But um, in terms of paid newsletters, I think that's been happening for a while, but it's still a tough one. Just like getting people to pay for local news, it's tough to get people to pay for newsletters. It's something that traditionally people have gotten for free, so they've come to Mm. accept that it should be free. Um, But I do think it's changing a little bit. We're launching our first one this week, actually. The will hayward newsletter on substack um so it's, oh, nice. it's all exclusive content people won't be able to get online until they will be given time to write you know for that each week um to build that audience and you know we're just harnessing personalities uh at the moment to try and connect with people in that way and um so is, is that one of your reporters yeah yeah it's our welsh affairs reporter so it'll be um sort of similar to Wales matters but it'll be exclusive content for this paid format that we've not done before so we'll see how that pans out
0: and you mentioned stuff like that i wondered do you feel like the rise of platforms like that which make payment so easy do you feel like that's having a rising tide floats or boats effect across the entire industry where people are more likely now to sign up for paid newsletters
2: i think it's changing i think people are starting to realize if you want quality journalism sometimes you have to pay for it um, and you're seeing that now with things like premium apps. We've we're launching a premium app as we speak, where people can pay for it to remove adverts and the you know the things that annoy them about news sites. So I think newsletters are starting to move in that direction. Um, but I still think even if you're talking five pounds a month, I still think it's hard to get people to part with that for something that they've traditionally had for free.
1: But mm. you know, it's, sometimes it's um, well, that's where I think it's really interesting if, you, if you've launched a new one that it's, it's then right, right now, this is something additional that, you know, you, you can't get this content elsewhere come, coming from this, this report that I think is really interesting.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, we've seen that with a lot of the Axios stuff as well, haven't we? We sort of said, well, look, here's a personality led one or here is a, you know, here's some exclusive content and that's worked really, really well for them. So, I mean, I'd be, really, I'd be fascinated to see how far that can be rolled out, that model.
1: I mean, like the Manchester Milders, because they're they're f- they're free on Substack, but you can choose to support, and I, that's slightly different. But again, you got the you got the cluster of people that get it for free, and then the sort of smaller cluster who'll say, oh, "I'll sort of pay to voluntarily support this." Um, and
2: there's a, a new kind of thing people are doing on Substack where you can sign up for the newsletter and get the free version of it, or you can get the paid version of it. So I think the idea is that maybe we can start easing people in yeah. by giving them the free version and they get a taste of it and then they go wait a second this really is worthwhile I would like to read this whole thing this is interesting so I think that's a nice way
1: to kind of ease people into the idea of paying for content the other thing I found with Substack because I've I've, I've paid for my first few Substack newsletters this year is that once you pay for one I know know. thank you um once you pay for one the the user journey to pay for that like to just to add a subscription onto the top is is like irritatingly easy yeah it's, it's like it's oh just just week add week, that, yeah. one, just have that one just add that one just add that one it's the click of a button yeah
0: exactly. i think it was it was uh, terry white's um newsletter uh white noise which got me over that and that again that was a very personality level but now as to your point i'll see when i'll go yeah all right I just add <laughs> it on just have it. they've yeah, got my fine. credit card details
1: <laughs> like, just-
0: <laughs> So, Gillian, we, we touched upon a couple of the trends there. I just wondered, earlier in the year, the Reuters Institute found that publishers were going to be putting more time and resource into actually innovating their their newsletters. You mentioned, you know, AI and stuff, but where do you feel like there is still room for innovation in the newsletter space? Is it kind of in outreach? Is it in terms of what the newsletters actually look like, the kind of the design of them? You know, there's endless places that where this space could evolve into. I just wondered what you see as sort of being some of those big opportunities.
2: Chris, you're going to end on such a tough question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, this is the thing. I don't think anybody. I think it would be crazy for anybody to have like a you know one and done. This is where we're going to invest. You know, we certainly don't know what we're okay. going to invest on. Can I jump in with all places. that? Yeah, go on.
1: I think design is a huge area that there's a, there's a, there's this huge gulf between some quite well established publishers and the people that are starting up new on Substack, and Substack is really. By completely stripping it down, they've really kind of almost mm. reset the game for design. And I get some, I get some newsletters from like some really established premium brands that the design is just atrocious. And you Can just you think, like, I'm trying to read this
0: commercial brand. Sorry, like um,
1: product. B- the, the one that I particularly mind is magazine is a, a, a couple of magazine brands that I get like a, a finance, a financial newsletter. And like, it's not, it's not formatted for mobile. I'm like, guys, it's 2023. You're sending this to like women, like f- women interested in finance. And I can't read it on my phone. Like, come on. <laughs> I think there's still such a range. There's some people that have been doing
2: newsletters or some brands that have been doing newsletters for so long that they're producing these really, really brilliant products. But then there are some people you look at or some sites that you look at and you think, is this where we are still with this? You know, it's. I still think we really run the gamut in in that sort of thing. So I think everyone's kind of at a different point with it. What I would really love to be able to do at Wells Online is find a way to bring our videos because we're doing a ton Mm. of great video content right now. Find a way to bring our videos straight into our newsletters without having to send you elsewhere to look at them. I think that that would be massive. We're not there yet, but um, I know people love videos right now who doesn't like spend all day scrolling on their Instagrams and TikToks and that sort of thing. So <laughs> I'd like to get people to not have to leave the newsletter to do that
1: for that. And podcasts, that'd be amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's probably, that is probably game changing. Um, yeah. I can see that I can see though, and I'm going to play a little bit of devil's avocado here that there'd be pushback against that. People don't necessarily use their email and newsletters for that. You know, it goes back to what we were saying before about it being a sort of finite finishable experience. So I wonder to what extent people would, even if that were an option, go, you know what? That's this is not why people choose to read our newsletters. We're not going
1: Well, Gmail hasn't launched stories yet. They're the only app not to launch stories. That's so maybe when true. Gmail launches stories we'll,
0: <laughs> <When they laughs> we'll get start, that functionality. Yeah, when they immediately start embedding YouTube shorts in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Julian, thanks so much for coming on and having the chat. Obviously, that's been a fairly whistle-stop tour through one of the largest and most innovative mediums that's going on in media at the moment. So I really appreciate you coming on and being so insightful and concise. For listeners who want more from you in terms of that insight, where's the best placement to find you?
2: Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search my name, Julian McMath, or on Twitter, Gillian underscore McMath.
0: We're gonna be dealing with newsletters as a chapter in Media Moments 2023. That's our annual report looking back at everything that's gone on in media over the past year. And you can pre-download that by going to voicesmedia forward slash mm23.
1: And we, we only had a brief mentions of AI in this episode. That makes a change. Um, if if you are interested in AI and what it could do for you as a publication, we have a, an event we're collaborating on with MX3. Um, that's MX3 AI. That is the 7th of December in London. That's coming up quick. Uh, we'll be exploring all things AI and the opportunities for publishers. Uh, the agenda is all at, at MX3AI.com
0: for more. And we would be fools not to push our own newsletter after all this talk. So you can sign up to our daily newsletter by going to voices.media. While you're there, why not sign up to our community? We are having interesting chats on there daily about everything to do with media and a lot to do with non-media topics as well. So if you want to recommend a movie, a book, anything you've read or watched that's that you found particularly fascinating, please do sign up because we always love to hear it. So you can do that by going to voices.media. But we will be back again next week for another look at a particular topic to do with media over the past 12 months. Until then, Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.
1: Our New Year's resolution should be to decide (laughs) on a sign-off.